This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the board of the New Orleans Convention Center announced that it has selected a team for an ambitious neighborhood and entertainment district development project. The New Orleans Police Department is making significant strides towards full compliance with a federal consent decree put in place in 2013 and is hoping to have the costly monitoring program lifted. And data released this week shows that white residents continue to outpace black residents in getting the COVID vaccine, and the city is taking steps to address the disparities. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Hello. Health reporter Philip Kiefer joining this week. Hello, Philip. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Michael, first up with you, this week the Convention Center took a major step forward into realizing a decade-long ambition building a new riverfront entertainment district on 39 acres of land it owns on its upriver side. The publicly subsidized project had been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic, but it appears to be back on track. What is the entertainment district supposed to be? Give us some background here. Yeah, so so this this is a plan that's been long in the works at the convention center. And Wednesday of this week, the convention center ended up picking a master development team that's kind of going to be tackling this project, you know, over the next several years, up to a decade, building this development. And and it'll it'll encompass a lot of different factors. So you're going to have residential housing, you're going to have office space, you're going to have um, bars, restaurants, hotels. Um, so unlike you know your everyday development where you're building a new building or you're renovating a building or even a complex of buildings this is trying to create an entirely new neighborhood from scratch um you can go down on convention center boulevard and see the land um that's at stake here so it's it's just up river of the convention center and right now it's just a big vacant grassy piece of land so um the idea is to take that and to turn it into you know not just a convention center not just a a, you know, a a building complex, but an actual neighborhood where people live, work and and visit. So um, again, it's it's a very broad, big plan. You know, the master developer that was chosen um, this week had put together a proposal. And so there are some details in there, but that was put together prior to the coronavirus. So we're expecting that some of these details are gonna change. Um, but but it'll give you an idea. Um, in the original proposal, um, it calls for over a thousand new residential units. It calls for a new civil rights museum. You know, again, just a very, very broad project here. How did the convention center end up being the owner of this land? Yeah, so the original plan was actually to extend the actual convention center building itself. The convention center spent about $55 million in the early 2000s. Um, buying this land. But then after Katrina, the demand for that extra convention center space kind of dropped off. So they scrapped the plan. But after that, they were, you know, had all this land on on their hands and um, the plan became this entertainment district. So it was kind of a twofold plan. Um, The the first aspect of it, they wanted to build this um, marquee hotel that would, you know, be physically attached to the convention center. Um, And then the second part of the plan is what we're talking about today. So an an entertainment district that would surround the hotel, 
um, to kind of build up demand. Because, you know, when, when people come to conventions, they usually want to stay on the downriver side near the French Quarter. So, you know, building this hotel, you know, there was a worry that there wouldn't be enough demand if you didn't build some sort of attraction, something around it. Um, so th th those plans were really um, meant to work uh, in conjunction with each other. Yeah, I mean, if I could add, I, I, you know, sort of the bigger picture here is convention centers in general, the patterns have been that they they just kind of, in many cases, they sort of exist just to, just to expand and expand because, you know, the market is sort of saturated. Years and years ago, you had the largest, uh, you know, biggest tourist uh, cities in the country building large convention centers. Um, that market has grown to basically every medium-sized city in the country has a gigantic convention center you know on top of that uh you know in many cases i'm not sure specifically in new orleans but people who run convention centers their uh pay is sort of tied to growth year over year uh the banks that the convention centers work with in as bond underwriters you know kind of have uh have have an incentive to encourage growth too because you know they're 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 underwriting the bonds so you have kind of all these factors coming together that convention centers sort of see their purpose as growing and growing and growing. Um, in this case, this is this is sort of s a little different because New Orleans has a, a very large convention center to begin with, and, you know, the, the upriver side of it has historically seen a little less, um, uh, you know, a little less traffic than the downriver side of it, so growing the actual box, as sometimes they call it in that business, was abandoned, you know, after Katrina, and, uh, uh, you know, so they've decided to to instead grow in a in a somewhat different way, which is you know creating a new tourism district to contract uh, to attract conventioneers, which is you know sort of an interesting way to go because because we have you know just on the other side of the convention center we have a fairly famous tourism district already in the French Quarter. This all kind of is is birthed in the uh, the incentives to grow convention centers over time. Yeah. And, and to add to that context, I think, you know, Charles mentioned, you know, the, the market, you know, a lot of cities um, across the U.S. and world invested in convention centers, and it kind of became this pretty saturated market. Um, and so you kind of see this almost like arms race of convention centers around the country mm. where you're investing more and more to build more amenities, to build these, you know, the, the, the new thing in the past decade, in the past two decades has been like building these hotels that are physically attached to your convention center. I think that if you're cynical about it, um, you think that, you know, this is just an endless string of investments that you're going to have to make to kind of sustain this, um, you know, pretty even level of, of uh, participation in your convention center. If you're an optimist, um, I think that some people are hoping that there's going to be a sort of consolidation of the convention center business that you're going to start seeing some cities kind of drop out of this competition. And, you know, again, New Orleans is a great destination. People like coming here. So I think that New Orleans is hoping that, again, the, the convention center business is going to consolidate in, you know, four or five major, you know, destinations and we're going to be one of them. But what is the public component of this? So we don't know the full public component of it yet um, because they're going to have to put together a financing, you know, plan for the specific plan. But we do know at, at minimum the convention center is going to be spending $26 million dollars to clean up this land, you know, to make it ready for construction. You know, there's no utility lines, you know, you need plumbing. So there, there's certain things that the convention center has agreed um, to prepare on that site. And then past that, we know, you know, in the, in the developer pr proposal uh, mentioned that they're gonna be going after other public subsidies. Um, 
like low-income housing grants, um, payments in lieu of taxes, which which is basically an alternative to paying property taxes. So we can expect that there's going to be more and more public subsidy here. And then there's the land itself. You know, like I mentioned, that was about a $55 million investment back in 2000 to 2003. Um, and they're going to be paying a ground lease, I suspect, whether that's going to be market rate or maybe, you know, a little bit less to, to you know, get the project going. We'll see. But there's certainly going to be millions of dollars of public investment. You mentioned in your story that there were two uh, teams that were vying for the nod here. Did did you get any indication why the one that was chosen was ultimately chosen? And was the neighborhood concept part of both of their proposals or was that unique to the people that won? So the winning group, they were called the River District Neighborhood Investors. I think the few things that put them over the top, I think first they put a greater emphasis on the residential aspect of the neighborhood. They, you know, they, they had both included residential aspects, but the River District group really focused on starting with the residential to create a foundation for this neighborhood and then adding more entertainment you know, aspects on top of that. Um, the other group wanted to start with this pretty big, you know, music and event hall and have that be the anchor. And, you know, in the meantime, they wanted to use empty, undeveloped space to, to for as festival grounds and, 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 you know, space that you could rent out for other, you know, events. So, you know, I, I think that they had a, a, the winning team had a greater emphasis on the residential side. Um, I think a big deal for the board was that they had more uh, black and women owned um, businesses on the team um, and more equity ownership in those hands. Um, and really stressed um, that they wanted to continue that as they start con contracting this out. And then I think the third thing that kind of put them over the top is that they're starting to acquire all this land, or, or at least they're claiming that, that they're gonna go acquire all this land around the entertainment district to make it even bigger. So I, if you know the Market Street power plant, there's a big um, old abandoned power plant on, on the riverfront. So the, the winning team said that they're now in talks to acquire that. Um, they're trying to acquire more riverfront land um, that's owned by Tulane University and the Port of New Orleans. So they also brought to the table that they're going to, you know, expand this even further um, than the land owned by the convention center. What was interesting to me, part of what was interesting to me here was that, that as you said, the emphasis on the residential. And, and, and I'm going to ask you about what your interpretation of that is, because just for context, part of what was going on when this was put on hold last year is there was a, a, a pretty loud uh, public backlash to going forward with this project during the, the pandemic, because the pandemic has hit the tourism sector harder than any other industry, right? And so people people were questioning why public, A, why public money was being put, put to use to for something that, you know, some people could characterize as a, as a frivolous investment. Obviously, people in the tourism industry would um, would dispute that because tourism is such a large business and, and so many people are employed in tourism in New Orleans or, or you know, at least they, they used to be. We have a, a few less now. So I, I'm wondering, Michael, if your interpretation on the, of the uh, uh, emphasis on, on the residential was sort of a, you know, a, there were political considerations there uh, because of that criticism from last year. This will be building something, you know, at least ostensibly for people in New Orleans. And, you know, uh, on top of that, I also wondered if part of it too was, was sort of like, was, uh, 
you know, an affordable housing argument built into this that, you know, we're going to be building more housing and more housing equals a better market for affordable housing. I'm not saying I, I, I believe that's necessarily true. Some people accept that as gospel. Some people reject that idea that saying building expensive housing does not create affordable housing. But that is something that, you know, more density necessarily equals more affordability is some is something that a lot of people do believe. You think those were part of those considerations were part of this package? Yeah, I mean, so, so I, I'll say two things. I think the first is that it, there was definitely politics involved. Um, the, the really strong emphasis on, you know, we want this to be you know, a sustainable neighborhood where people can work and live. Um, we, we don't want this to just be, you know, this this Disney World tourist center. We want it to be a real living, thriving New Orleans neighborhood. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think that there's politics involved with that mission. Not that the developers don't necessarily actually want that and believe that, but um, in terms of the backlash that the convention center has faced over these publicly subsidized investments, certainly, certainly that played into it. I'll, I'll say that there, there did seem to be some genuine logic to starting with the residential side. Um, you know, the, the way they talked about it, again, I don't, I don't really know how developments like this work. So, so this is just my intuition talking, but talking about how, you know, filling up, uh, um, you know, just a, a Walgreens, right? Putting a Walgreens in before people live there, you know, is that going to fail by the time that you get people moving into the neighborhood to actually use that Walgreens? Um, how, you know, are you going to build a supermarket before you have people actually living there? So, you know, the idea is that they want the neighborhood to be, you know, that they use the word sustainable a lot um, in that you don't need to keep pumping in tourists to make it kind of thrive and to actually work as a neighborhood. So, again, that, that seemed, you know, like a practical point to me. Um, but again, I think the focus on the residential side, on workforce and affordable housing, all of those aspects definitely had, you know, um, some politics to them. And they do have some affordable units built into the plan is that right yeah, I mean, a, a, a good amount i mean you know I, I think everyone's definition of what affordable housing you know i think that's where um, <laughs> yeah, very, but yeah. you know they, they say out of the 1100 residential units um that they had planned in their original proposal 450 would be workforce and affordable housing so again i mean devil's in the details but but you know a significant chunk of what they're building how does this relate to the convention center? I mean, I, you know, you talked about the arms race, and I understand how a hotel maybe annex on, onto that, you know, seems within the realm or the scope of, but building a neighborhood seems kind of like a whole, a whole different thing. I think the idea is you're building something where people can walk right out of the convention center and go have drinks and get dinner and stuff like that. Um, you know, you're built, you're, you're building something that is, you know, they, as Michael said, they do emphasize their residential part, but you are, the, the idea is you are building a, a, a tourism and entertainment district with that, that is directly outside of the convention center. Yeah, I, so, so they'll go to their mission statement a lot, which says that it, it's to finance, construct, and operate facilities in order to attract and conduct conventions, trade shows, and other events, and support and expand the economy, both of the state of Louisiana and New Orleans. So I think that they're saying that this falls into their mission. I, I have had the same question. I, um, I mean, I've never covered anything like this, Charles. I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, I've looked. I've seen developments. I've never seen the development of an entire neighborhood, um, and I certainly have never seen that done by a convention center rather than you know, a city council or a city planning commission. I mean, I, I don't. I've never seen a project like this in the hands of a convention center, Charles. I don't know if you've reported on anything. 
I've seen I, I've I've seen something similar in the last couple of years. There was a uh, it was not a convention center, but it was um, it was a, a new sports arena uh, in Detroit um, where now the Red Wings and the Pistons play, owned by uh, uh, the family that owns uh, or you know built by the family that owns Little Caesars with a lot of heavy heavily heavily subsidized. Um, uh, very, very heavily subsidized publicly, and similarly, they 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 uh, they did build. Uh, I'm not sure if it was quite this large, but they built uh, a, a sizable neighborhood around around the stadium. So that was kind of an, an interesting one uh, because for years and years, the uh, the Little Caesars family had been buying up properties in the neighborhood that used to be there, and sort of um, allowing them to uh, to become blighted over time. Um, which then made adjacent properties cheaper and cheaper, so they were able to build, buy up more and more property, and then use their blighted status as an argument as to why that what was there should be demolished. What happens next? So as to what happens next, I, I can answer in the immediate term. Um, so, so this week, the Convention Center chose this master development team and is now entering this year-long negotiating period um, where they're going to actually, you know, really clarify all the details of this, you know, take another look at their original proposal, you know, increase, decrease housing, you know, make changes here and there, um, figure out a financing plan, um, and then that will have to be approved ultimately by the Convention Center Board. Um, now, what happens after that, I'm not 100% sure. I know that it's going to involve some level of approval from, you know, other, other city authorities like the City Council and the City Planning Commission, exactly what they're going to need to go for, to them for, um, you know, exactly what they can do on their own. There, there's a trillion details in this plan. So um, I think it's something that we're going to see come up um, kind of again and again, um, especially once this actually gets underway and they're coming, you know, to the city council, you know, on these plans. I think it's going to be something that we're going to be seeing in the news. You know, the city planning commission, that's going to be a big undertaking to build an entire neighborhood like this. Just seeing what work goes in to a proposal to the city planning commission to to build a building building an entire neighborhood is going to be a huge undertaking for the developers and the city planning commission it's big yeah process. michael this is going to be job security for you for several years covering this story <laughs> yeah i guess that's one way to look at it <laughs> thanks for thank you for that thank you you're listening to behind the lens i'm carolyn heldman my guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, and I cover education here at The Lens. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, a public hearing was held on the New Orleans Police Department's consent decree this week. It was relatively optimistic. The lead monitor said that he thought the NOPD would be in full compliance with the agreement by July if everything goes well, which then begins a two-year sustainment period. The city's trying to argue that it's already in compliance and the agreement should be lifted now. What happened at the meeting on Tuesday? Yeah, well, as you said, the meeting was 
was quite optimistic. I thought it was surprisingly optimistic, sort of given given some of the um, so, some of what we've seen uh, with with the consent decree over the last you know year or so. So the monitors said that they thought that the department could be in full compliance with the consent decree by July. Right now, there are five uh, sort of different sections of the consent decree that they're not in compliance with. Um, but basically, in all of them, they said that, that, that the NOPD had sort of, you know, a solid structural plan for getting there um, and that it just was going to take some implementation. Um, and I guess the reason I, I say, you know, it was it was somewhat surprising is that the last monitor's report, while was, you know, somewhat optimistic and, and gave the NOPD credit in, in a few areas, um, also pointed out that there were there were some troubling um, things that happened in the past year. Uh, all of the tasks task forces, which are these, uh, you know, district-based crime prevention units, uh, were disbanded after. Uh, I'm not sure if it was after, but but around the time when I, this this critical report from the monitors came out saying they weren't being supervised and that you know there were some some questionable activities and reports being written in these task forces. One in particular got a lot of news attention. The district task force, um, where officers were alleged to have been making questionable stops. And then we had the incident on the Crescent City Connection where the police used uh, tear gas on protesters. Um, and that was another incident that the monitors brought up as, as sort of being a questionable um, uh, decision. But th- there, was, there was very little talk of that uh, at the meeting on Tuesday. It was, it was prim- you know, I think they were mentioned, but it was a primarily optimistic and, and um, uh, like I said, congratulatory meeting. For listeners who don't understand what this is, can you give some background on why it was uh, implemented in 2013 and what was it about? Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, I think Charles might even be a, be- a better person to talk about it because I think he was here at the time. I, I was not uh, in the city covering it. Um, but the Department of Justice, uh, you know, after some high profile incidents um, uh, after Hurricane Katrina, did an investigation into the New Orleans Police Department and, you know, found a lot of uh, troubling patterns and practices, um, illegal arrests being made, uh, discriminatory policing, and ultimately came to this agreement with the city that they would would implement a consent decree. And that has cost, cost the city a lot of money and has from most people's perspectives that I've talked to, you know, really transformed the department as well. Mm. Uh, you know, the, mo- the monitors said that when they came in, I think they called it the most corrupt uh, police department in the country. So it was, a, it was a very troubled, you know, police force. And and I think after, you know, a lot of work, they're feeling quite good about, about where they've come to. I don't know, Charles, do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what actually led to the consent decree? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you pretty much covered a lot of it. Basically, obviously, post-Katrina, with everything that happened, with, you know, the various uh, police shootings that happened during Katrina um, and, and you know, sort of cover-ups of those shootings that followed, you know, you have uh, Mayor Landrieu come into office in 2010, and, you know, part of his uh, pledge, you know, coming into office was that he was, he was going to, you know, clean, help clean up the police department, Justice Department comes comes in in 2010, I believe, at Mayor Landrieu's request. I might have that wrong, but I, I believe that's my memory. And does the and releases this massive report on all the problems that they found in the New Orleans Police Department the following year. Um, Mayor Landrieu was 
you know, very strongly uh, in his early days in office, pushing, uh, pushing for a federal consent decree at the time. You know, it was the Obama administration, and Eric Holder was the head of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General at the time. And his Justice Department was uh, very interested in police reform. And you know, we saw sort of a, we saw a large number of consent decrees across the country uh, that happened during that administration. And you know, New Orleans was one of them. The the interesting thing that happened with that was, you know, they basically uh, when 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 they when they unveiled the consent decree that they had negotiated. You know, there was almost like a coronation event at, at, at Gallier, Gallier Hall where Eric Holder came. He and Mayor Lander were patting each other on the back. And then uh, when it kind of came time to actually, um, you know, get the consent decree approved, at the same time, a, a civil rights group had sued, uh, sued the sheriff's office over the conditions of the jail, and they were trying to get a consent decree going. So Landry was looking at two expensive consent decrees that the city would be on the hook for at the same time. So he, um, you know, who was the one who welcomed it and it was, you know, almost part of his campaign, he he decided to start fighting the consent decree that he had brought to New Orleans in court. Um, You know, of course, that failed. And uh, the consent decree has been with us since... 2013. And, you know, as Nick has said, you know, by most accounts, it has seemed to transform a lot of parts of of this department and how it operates. But, um, you know, there are still plenty of remaining problems in some very, fairly serious areas of uh, of the consent decree, like, you know, the things that actually people actually care about. You listed a few of the areas where the uh, the department is still short of compliance uh, in your article. Nick, do you remember what those were? So supervision, performance evaluations and promotions, stop searches and arrests, bias-free policing and community engagement. Bias-free policing, in the report it sounded like there was going to be more work to do, but in the at the actual meeting it sounded like a lot of the work had to do with translating police department uh, communications into multiple languages to make sure that, that people have access to, to police resources, uh, you know, regardless of what, what language they're speaking, which, you know, is obviously important but but different from sort of the problems of, of discriminatory arrests and you know even harassment that that kind of the initial uh, department of justice report um outlined all right how can the city be released from this agreement at this point the monitors make the determination that they believe they're in substantial compliance that still has to be approved by by the judge who's overseeing who's ultimately responsible for the consent decree but the the judge is not gonna or or, is not going to make that call judge susie morgan is not going to make that call until the monitors make that call but the thing here is you know the monitors are saying they believe the department's going to be in substantial compliance by this summer but the, the consent decree also says that once you reach substantial compliance, there's kind of a two-year cool-down period right. where you're still uh, being monitored and you're and you're still paying for a lot of the things that are required in the consent decree, and that is what the city uh, part of what the city is currently objecting to. Do they have any recourse for that? Can they argue that that can be limited to less than two years? Or yeah, I mean they can get the consent decree amended, but that's going to be up to the judge. And the pattern over time is that is that the judge has you know tended to trust the judgment of the monitors. Um, so I would say that if the city is trying 
to get this amendment to happen and the monitors disagree with it, it's going to be it's going to be a tough argument for the city to make in front of the judge. So the city issued a notice to the Department of Justice back in November telling them that the city feels that the department has been in full and effective compliance, which is what is necessary uh, to get the consent decree lifted. And they say that they've been, they feel they've been in full and effective compliance for two years. The sort of legal argument that they're making, which is pretty interesting, is that there is these two definitions of, of full and effective compliance within the consent decree. And the ones that the, mon- the, one, the de- definition that the monitors are using clearly is that the department has to be in full and effective compliance of each of the provisions of the consent decree. And once that happens, then they can start this two-year uh, sustainment period. But the consent decree also says that full and effective compliance can mean sustained and continuing improvement in constitutional policing. And the city has taken that sort of uh, you know provision and said, look, we've been making you know sustained uh, improvement for two years. Like you, this is this is clear, and therefore we've been in full and effective compliance. Mm. Um, and should be let out right so the question now is now now that the city has has um notified the department of justice which they are required to do by the consent decree the department of justice could either just agree with them and and go to the judge and say look we agree with the city and and you should lift it that does not appear to be what's going to happen Mm. but what the city can do now is file in in federal court um a motion to terminate the consent decree um, and so that would be the next step, and that's when the judge would would ultimately make a decision. The Department of Justice would get to file an objection. Uh, if they did, there would be a hearing on it. Mm. But the city, you know, it's, it, the city filed its notice in November and has not filed the, the motion to terminate yet. Whether or not they're going to, you know, kind of carry out that process, um, I think remains to be seen. My guess is they feel they probably have a fairly, uh, you know, a, an uphill battle in that. Right. It's also going to be an uphill battle because the city's this, the way the city is interpreting compliance now. I mean, just to my experience, uh, you know, I haven't I haven't actively covered the NOPD consent decree in a few years, but back when I was, that interpretation is not how it was seeming to be interpreted in court when this would be discussed and in in you know evaluations and even even in the way the city discussed its own evaluations for a few years at least this was it seemed that the monitors in the city were fairly close in in their interpretation of what compliance meant hmm. so i don't know how it's going to play that that this the city seemingly to my mind is changing its own interpretation. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Philip. Philip, in health news, just over two weeks ago, the state opened vaccine eligibility to the vast majority of Louisiana adults. Since then, a smaller share of vaccines have gone to black New Orleanians. The city says it's an ongoing pattern and it's working to address the issue. How did vaccine eligibility change two weeks ago? On March 9th, the governor, Governor John Bell Edwards, announced that um, the vaccine would be available to anyone over the age of 16 who had one of a long list of um, high-risk conditions, including having a BMI over 25, which um, 
by most as I mean, you know, the most recent New Orleans numbers I could find was 64% of the population. And so by all accounts, um, that eligibility uh, opened vaccinations up to 70, 80, maybe more um, percent of Louisiana residents. So we went from a, a limited fraction, I don't know the exact number, but a limited fraction of Louisiana residents um, being eligible to around 80%. Okay, and what? how was vaccine distribution going then? What did it look like? So at that time, when it came to race specifically, so the, the state reports the percentage of doses, um, both first and second, going to black people and white people by parish. They don't report any other races. They just list it as other. But at that time, on March 9th, um, 45% of first doses had gone to black residents of New Orleans. 44% of first doses had gone to white residents. That was better than the state as a whole. It was still a disparity because 60% of New Orleans is black, but um, it was something that the the city and state were both talking about as an emphasis. And again, the the numbers here were significantly better than in many other parts of the state. And since since they changed the eligibility? So what we've seen overall is that 35% of first doses since March 9th have gone to black residents of New Orleans and about 52% of first doses have gone to white residents. So there's a pretty um, a pretty stark change. And obviously that's comparing doses over December to March 9th against March 9th to March 22nd. So it's a, um, it's a smaller proportion of those vaccines, but what we've seen is that since eligibility opened up to this large part of the population, um, it seems like a lot fewer of those doses are going to black residents. So what are the reasons they're giving, do they think, the city? Again, so the city and um, vaccine providers that I talked to said that um, this is something they've seen every time eligibility has opened up, although this was sort of the the biggest jump and so the biggest effect. But what they attribute it to is basically competition for open vaccine appointments, um, especially in the week, two weeks following um, the eligibility change. Vaccine appointments were fairly scarce. There were... um, 10-minute-plus wait times on the LCMC hotline to get into the convention center. Um, There are these um, Facebook and Twitter accounts um, that are, you know, specifically designed to help people find open vaccine appointments. Um, Or there have been these Facebook and Twitter accounts designed to help people find open vaccine appointments. And so what I was hearing from city officials is that basically... They think that people who have more flexible jobs where they can sit in front of a computer or sit at their phone calling around to try and get a vaccine appointment um, were able to compete for those spaces better and that that was a group that was 
disproportionately white. The other elements that I was hearing were just um, information access issues, and we don't have a lot of information on you know, what statistically this looks like, but I was hearing from both the city health department and from the vaccine manager at Crescent Care, which is a federally health, uh, qualified health center um, that serves a 60% black population normally, that when they're going into black neighborhoods and neighborhoods in general that are underserved by the medical system, they're hearing from people that they don't realize that they're eligible. Mm. Um, so for whatever reason, those communications aren't being disseminated from their point of view evenly. They're not traveling at the same rate to different communities. Right. Uh, to the city's credit on this, they, they seem to have anticipated this and you know have, have been rolling out a plan to deal with it including, you know, recently even sending out people door to door. Do you know what else the city is, is, is doing to sort of get the word out? And... The door to door side of it does seem to be huge. I mean, what we're hearing both at the state and city level is that to reach populations that don't have consistent access to health care, which, you know, Louisiana and countrywide is going to skew disproportionately towards people of color, um, just like getting out and having conversations with people and making sure that um, they know where they can sign up seems to be a big deal. Again, to the city's credit, they've been holding these neighborhood vaccination events to bring the vaccine out into communities. They've been pretty regularly in Central City and the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, the issue is they're getting their vaccines allocated from the state and so they've been doing roughly 300 to 600 doses a week at um at these neighborhood events um which is much smaller than the total number of vaccines being distributed in the city i mean over the march 9th to march 22nd time period there were about 33,000 doses first doses administered in the city and three to 600 of those being targeted um, into these neighborhood sites is, you know, it's just a small proportion of, of the total. Many more of those vaccines are going to CVS, uh, now Winn-Dixie, you know, to just national chains. Right. And just this week, uh, eligibility expanded again. On Monday, everyone over the age of 16 is going to be eligible for a vaccine. And I haven't followed up to see what um, providers are anticipating to come out of this in terms of um, equity of distribution. My hunch would be that the vaccine is so widely available at this point that it's probably not going to be as dramatic a shift as, um, as we saw after March 9th. The other thing I think that's changed since then is um, that appointments have become less scarce there just are more appointments at the convention center we're going to start getting regular large shipments of johnson and johnson which we hadn't been getting for most of march um which is going to make the convention center have even more capacity um and probably going to mean that the city has more capacity for these neighborhood events um and so the sort of competition factor is going to be less a part of this and the state is now doing its own neighborhood by neighborhood 
initiative. We don't have a lot of details on what this is going to look like. It's a program called Bringing Back Louisiana that's going to partner with a bunch of local nonprofits, community groups, um, uh, government agencies. They're partner- partnering with NOLA Ready here to do these sort of feed-on-the-street vaccine outreach events in zip codes that are currently not um, or that are currently being under-vaccinated. We don't have a lot of details on what that's going to look like in New Orleans yet. I would expect to see this problem diminishing, but probably not going away in the future. I mean, it's something that we're seeing the government work on actively. But again, even before March 9th, there was a fairly significant disparity. So there's sort of a big hill to climb there. Philip, thank you for keeping an eye on this for us. We'll be following up with you. Of course. Thanks for thanks for talking. Okay, you guys, have a great week. Thanks for your work. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Everyone. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.